All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the January-February 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. And also, please note, we'll have a post on the ACAAI Committee on Doc Matter where we can continue the discussion about the articles. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Jared Lee. I'm one of the co-hosts of Allergy Talk. I'm an associate professor at Emory University, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I'm currently the uh, editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. I'm also on the clinical faculty, adjunct clinical faculty at Emory, and I'm in practice at Atlanta Allergy and Asthma here in Atlanta. And the third chair is Dr. Marin Caravilla. Hi, everyone. This is Marin Caravilla, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. Okay, well, we have a lot of articles that's really interesting from the latest Allergy Watch issue. So I'm going to pick this one, kind of bring up a previous concern that got a lot of press back in the day, and that is the association between Tylenol or acetaminophen and asthma. So you may recall some of the early press back in the day that acetaminophen use in children was associated with an increase incidence of asthma. Now, clearly, you know, the use of acetaminophen is highly associated with infection. And you can imagine patients with respiratory infection are more likely to have symptomatic manifestations and someone with a respiratory disease like asthma. So, you know, this was sort of asking about, well, is asthma leading to more acetaminophen use or acetaminophen use increasing the risk of asthma? And that's a reasonable criticism of those studies. But, you know, there was some theoretical basis to this. Metaphen is metabolized in the liver and can lead to increased oxidative stress. And generally, it can deplete certain oxidative stress scavengers. The, the classic one is glutathione. And so what these investigators hypothesized is that everyone's capacity to neutralize oxidative stress is dependent on certain enzymes. And these are called glutathione as transferases. So there actually has been polymorphisms in the GST or glutathione as transferase enzymes that actually reduces the antioxidant functions, and potentially patients who take medications like acetaminophen are probably more vulnerable to oxidative stress. So this is data from a high-risk Australian birth cohort that started in the 1990s, and they've had data up to like age 18. So that is incredible that they have this cohort of like 500 children from the Melbourne HP cohort study that they've been able to follow for like almost 20 years. And so assessed data on acetaminophen use from birth to age two. They also determined whether it was related to a respiratory infection or not. And then they did genotyping of these patients in a 429 of the children with asthma, this the, the presence of asthma and lung function studies at a age 12 visit and an age 18 visit. And so 
when they looked at the data, they did a regression analysis. And if you double the days of acetaminophen use, there is an association with lower pre-bronchodilar FEV1 over FEC and mixed expiratory flow at age 18. Now, this was primarily for respiratory reasons. So if you look at non-respiratory indications for acetaminophen, that they did not see that association. So again, that supports the initial criticism. Well, you know, they're just getting sick and acetaminophen is a marker of infection. Now, if you look at those susceptible phenotype, GSTM1 null or GSTT1 present, there was a association between increased acetaminophen use for non-respiratory reasons and reduced FEV1. And another particular genotype that identified was GSTP isoleucine, isoleucine genotype, where increased acetaminophen use in the first two years was associated with the increased likelihood of developing asthma of age 18. They give an odds ratio of 1.66. So again, if you take all comers, it does make sense that there's a lot of patients where acetaminophen use will have very little impact. And, and therefore, you know, you're not going to see this effect. But this study, when looking at the particular vulnerable population because of these polymorphisms in antioxidant genes, potentially there is a true association or potential causality between overuse of acetaminophen and, again, inducing oxidative stress but that could predispose a patient to asthma. So taken together, we don't really know who has these genotypes. It's not something we routinely test for. But I think a lot of pediatricians have counseled their patients that acetaminophen really is a quality of life thing. It's for comfort. It really isn't a, a medication that's necessary to cure an illness or change the course of the disease. It's really symptomatic therapy. So, you know, I think pediatricians have always counseled their patients that, you know, if your baby's happy, you know, if your child has a fever, you do have the option of just letting the child be happy without medicine. And you know that's a, a culture change. I think families are concerned about fever. And so that the messaging on how we treat fever could or could not, depending on the person, potentially protect them from adverse events from these medications. That is so interesting. So Jerry, are you recommending that we use acetaminophen? What? Well, I'm oh sorry, not a, I'm sorry. I mean, no, 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 not acetaminophen, like ibuprofen. I'm suggesting if a child has fever but feels fine, then you don't need to treat a fever. I, I, I guess, you know, if you got a happy kid with a fever and it ain't bothering the kid, you know, you know, the body, you know, fever is a physiological response to infection, but it's not a harmful or dangerous manifestation. So certainly I don't want kids to suffer. If the child is uncomfortable, it does seems reasonable to treat the child. But just reflexively treating a number, I, I guess that's where some education would be in order. Although I, I want to, I, I must say, if I have a fever, I I don't feel good. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you should treat it. Yeah, you should treat it. Don't and, feel bad. And, and a lot of times, these little ba the little children, they can't really communicate that. So I don't know. I've been more inclined to use ibuprofen. I misspoke before, but I meant to say ibuprofen. And and again, I I think it's up to the parent to decide. You know how important that is to them and just recognize about what fever is and its consequences or lack of. Right. I mean, and this definitely makes me think twice about being so trigger happy with breaking out the Tylenol every time, you know, my child spikes a fever, but 
it's one of those things you just think of as just so innocuous and benign. The Tylenol, I mean, not the fever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When it may be the other way around, right? No, absolutely. And, and certainly, you know, I guess I'm very, I guess maybe I'm not a very good parent. Either. <laughs> my child's <laughs> suffering with a fever. So, you know, don't, don't, I hope my kid's not going to be upset with me when he gets older. Anyways, we'll see how he feels about all this. Okay. Well, the next article is very interesting. And that is a, a group of patients we worry about with asthma. And those are the ones who don't seek medical attention because they're poor perceivers. So Stan, you have a very interesting article about this vulnerable population. Yeah, this uh, article is entitled, Health Services Utilization is Increased in Poor Perceivers, Bronchoconstriction and Hyperinflation in Asthma. And it's from the group in Kingston in Ontario. It was published in the uh, Journal of Allergy, Clinical Immunology and Practice uh, in September of 2020. And if y'all recall, in 2002, it was kind of a classic article by McGendill, looked at this issue of poor perception of dyspnea, and he used a special meter and was able to analyze asthmatic patients' perception of dyspnea. And what he came up with was the fact that those who had poor perception of their asthma had greater utilization and higher risk for hospitalization and you know definitely they they had a harder time and this study basically confirms that so this study measures the perceptions of the intrinsic mechanical loads resulting in bronchoconstriction and dynamic hyperinflation uh, and their association with the asthma outcomes it's a prospective cohort study it included 155 asthmatic patients who underwent a high dose methacholine challenge testing and the reason for the high dose is so they could determine whether they had poor, normal, or over-perception of their asthma. And the breakdown was that the change of at methacholine, you know, their bronchoconstriction changes, at 20%, they were poor perceivers, 30% was normal, and 40% were overachievers. And that's how they differentiated these, these patients. And then they looked at severe exacerbations defined by the emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and that's why they use the the information from the health services utilization, which they can do in Canada. So the poor and the over-perceivers of dyspnea each accounted for about one-sixth of the study cohort. So that obviously most were in the normal range, but they did have those fringe and one-sixth of each, uh, you know, each range. Severe exacerbations were significantly increased among the poor perceivers of mild bronchoconstriction and in all levels of the dynamic hyperinflation. So for poor perceivers of severe dynamic hyperinflation, the outcome frequencies were 41.2% for ER visits and 5.8% for hospitalizations. And for four of the six FEV1 and the IC threshold decreases that were looked at, the poor perceivers had higher odds of severe exacerbations. In fact, the poor perceivers had a six-fold higher uh, odds ratio of having a severe exacerbation than a normal perceiver or a over-perceiver. And that's, I think, very significant. So asthmatic patients, you know, who are these poor perceivers are at really increased risks of having severe exacerbations. John uh, Oppenheimer, who made the comment here, he even went so far as to say that the author suggested we should consider maybe using methacholine challenge testing to identify poor perceivers of dyspnea. I'm, I haven't done that. And not sure that I would do that, but we all have patients who we know are utilize the uh, albuterol more frequently than others. You know, they jump to it very quickly. 
And there probably are some good reasons to look at this perception of a dyspnea problem, which is indicated you know, in the study. First of all, those who are poor perceivers may actually underestimate the severity of their disease and then delay treatment, you know, seeking treatment. And, and that's why they get to the hospital. They're worse off. Another point was that individuals who are asymptomatic or may have only mild symptoms are less likely to adhere to controller therapy. So that could be a factor of their asthma, mortality, or morbidity. Thirdly, the poor perceivers may be unable to recognize, you know, by the extent of their environmental triggers. In other words, they don't recognize what causes their asthma or triggers it. And lastly, the poor perceivers may may be a, some sort of an epiphenomena, so to speak, of severe asthma, reflecting maybe an adaptation of a poor baseline lung function. Now, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but that was in this article too. And I thought I'd bring it up so that we could maybe comment on those too. You know, the hardest struggle we have with asthma is convincing someone who feels completely fine to take a medicine every day. And you can only imagine how more difficult that's going to be with someone who never even feels short of breath. You know, I, I have no clue how to persuade somebody who feels no benefit from the medicine to take them other than trying to educate as best I possible, give them insight about these exacerbations. You know, it'd be nice to have some sort of monitoring device, I suppose, but is that going to be a motivation? Uh, it's a struggle. I can, uh, I would love to see how people are able to talk someone into doing that. How about just objectively showing them their lung function results, which is what I do. Yeah. Is that persuasive? I, I mean, I think so. <laughs> I think it is persuasive. I have patients who come in, you know, for their checkups and they say, well, what's my number now? You know, they, it, some of them are pretty competitive and they really want to have their, uh, they want to see their FEV1 go up. I, that's kind of what I focus on. And also we've been looking at phenos as well. So, you know, they want to make sure, oh, what's my pheno today? You know, I, I think that it engages the patient and it does, you know, teach them the benefit of continuing controllers. And, you know, it sort of brings us back to that pheno recommendation that we discussed during one of our previous podcasts. So what do you think, Stan? It says, don't treat the pheno in isolation, but what about an elevated pheno in these poor perceivers? Well, I think if it's a poor perceiver or you have a patient who, you know, maybe because they've had frequent, you know, maybe some severe exacerbations, you know, just all of a sudden, they might be poor perceivers. And yeah, that maybe that's, that's enough of a marker to say, look, you know, in light of the fact that you're not going to perceive your airway obstruction as, as quickly as somebody else, it would be a good reason to encourage them to continue or add on another inhaler. Were there any other associations with poor perception? Like, did they look at obesity or anxiety? You know, that's a good question. Because you just wonder whether obese patients would tend to be poor perceivers. So they did look at, you know, self-reported comorbidities and about 10% reported that they had anxiety. And in terms of their uh, body mass index, it was, I mean, most of the, most of the, the patients in the study were females, 67%, but the body mass, in, uh, body mass index was 28. So it wasn't really at all. So Merritt, I think to close out the podcast, you've got some very insightful personal interviews from parents dealing with children with multiple food allergies, which I know is a very challenging population. So what have we learned from these interviews? Right. So this is a questionnaire study that was published last year in Pediatric Allergy Immunology and reviewed by Todd Marr for Allergy Watch. And 
it sort of just examined perceptions of burden among families of children with multiple food allergies. And this was a Canadian study that used an online questionnaire distributed to families of children with physician-diagnosed milk allergy plus at least one other food allergy. And the questionnaire set out to explore the burden of allergy of individual foods in terms of emotional demands, social restrictions, time and financial burden. And after completing the questionnaire, a subset of parents were then interviewed to provide a greater insight on the allergy burden. So a qualitative response. 64 participants were recruited and more than 70% of the children were 10 or younger. In addition to milk, 65% had concomitant peanut allergy, 58% had tree nut allergies, 76% had egg allergies, and sesame allergies were found in 31%. In 81% of the respondents stated that milk allergy was the most socially limiting, and 76% stated that milk allergy required the most planning and caused the most anxiety in 68%. This was a mixed method study that also used it open-ended questions, and 54 participants gave qualitative responses in subsequent interviews. And there were five themes related to the burden of milk allergy. First of all, how alternative sources of calcium were both difficult to find, more expensive, and just also perceived as not having the same nutritional value. One of them complained that the taste of vegan cheese is, was not palatable. I can completely empathize. Other problems identified included how milk was just heavily promoted to children as a dietary staple and dairy-related ingredients are so ubiquitous and this makes eating at restaurants challenging. Parents also discussed public misperceptions that milk allergy is not as serious as a peanut allergy, for instance, and that other people would often confuse or dismiss their child's milk allergy as just, oh, it's probably lactose intolerance. And finally, they complained about social interactions and people's unwillingness to give up dairy, for instance, a pizza party or cookies and milk for Santa, even at the cost of excluding the allergic child. So Todd Marr's comments in Allergy Watch was that there is still a gap in the literacy of the general public on the subject of milk allergy. And one aspect that stands out is the lack of general understanding between an IgE-mediated clinical allergy and lactose intolerance, as well as the different forms of cow's milk. So he said that in addition to teaching our patients about their allergy, efforts should also be made to educate on a community-wide basis to relieve some of this burden on our patients and their families. Yeah, I just so, so reminds me of some of the patients reporting allergic reactions to dairy-free because it contains milk. I mean, that's just, you know, just blows your mind how challenging it is when they're trying to lab navigate labels and something that at first glance seems quite safe could potentially have milk protein in it. You know, clearly there's a huge need for these families to have consistent guidance from nutritional specialists 
especially with multiple food allergies. But yes, I could totally see where they're coming from with milk. I, I would say those patients definitely have a lot of challenges and you know vulnerability to, to reactions. So I think I agree, Aaron, with what you said about Todd's comments. I think they're right on because the public doesn't understand you know these milk allergies, and especially the patients who we have that have the same life-threatening risk. You know, and and we all have those kind of patients, and it's very difficult for them. You know, as well. I mean, they are uh, parev. You know, the kosher symbol. Those foods have no uh, milk protein in them. So that's you know something that we do you know, tell our patients about, but still it's very difficult to, you know, for the children if they have to totally avoid all milk protein. Oh, am I confusing non-dairy and dairy-free? Oh my goodness. Now I'm not even, I'm getting even confused. So that's not good. Right. But essentially, you know, like again, those that those labelings, and again, reminding our patients to to look at the the specific ingredient list that is uh, regulated is clearly only one step. There's so many things we need to do uh, culturally to address this. I'm kind of curious. What is your favorite alternative milk? What are you recommending? Well, I, I think a, a lot of the a lot of the the kids are coming in with these plant based milks. Yeah, the ripple. Uh, I, that's they, what I've seen. I mean, yeah. almond milk. I mean, yeah. my kids have now. They've started using oat milk, and I'm like, these are all new to me. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't even know if they have, or they're dairy free, so I, I shouldn't say anything. Yeah, and no, I personally don't have a favorite alternative milk, but I would recommend soy. Sure, sure, and 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 again, everyone's going to have their own food allergy and taste preferences, and so on. And you know, I, I think for sure, I'm always impressed by these questionnaires because we really need to appreciate the struggle some of our families go through and with empathy and support. I, I really can't imagine uh, raising a child and just being so worried uh, about all these exposures, especially something ubiquitous as milk. So I think our families do need a lot of support and it's really great when we hear their voices. This is really something that we need to hear more right. from. Right. No, I completely agree. This was just so this reading this was so eye-opening for me and especially the personal statements personal experiences about how exclusionary it is it was just really heartbreaking to read absolutely so again that's going to wrap it up for this podcast thank you again for listening if you do like what you're hearing here please rate our podcast on itunes and also we do appreciate your ideas for future episodes corrections feedback, send that to allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. We appreciate you listening to us and we look forward to hearing from you and we'll talk to you later. Have a wonderful day, everybody.